On this episode of the Untold Civil War, we are about to embark on a journey for Confederate gold. Bill Carson tells me it's buried in a grave marked unknown besides Arch Stanton. On this journey, you're going to have to remember, there are two kinds of spurs, my friend. Those that come in by the door, those that come in by the window. <laughs> Alright, enough of the good, the bad, and the ugly references. Gotta say, in my opinion though, Eli Wallach stole the show in that movie. But hey, thank you for tuning in to this episode on the New Mexico Campaign, the westernmost land campaign of the war. But before we get into the history, I want to thank my patrons on Patreon. I'm going to highlight two today. Big shout out to Amy Blaylock and Anthony Ketchum. Guys, there will be a link in the show notes for those who wish to become patrons. The proceeds go directly to enhancing all aspects of this show. I really appreciate it. Also, there is an option on there for Civil War slash history businesses. Have a bed and breakfast at Gettysburg? Maybe you sell antiques. Become a sponsor and I will not only advertise for you, but I will work with you to get your brand out to a wide audience. Why am I doing this? Because just like me, my listeners love that stuff and they want to hear about it. This is a great opportunity. And with that said, I would like to thank today's sponsor and good friend of the show, The Badge Maker. More on him later. Now remember, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. And it's time to dig up some untold civil war. I'm here with Dr. Donald Frazier, who is renowned for his work regarding Texans and the Civil War. He's written at least five books on the topic, with the most recent being Tempest Over Texas, which I hope you'll uh, come back on the show to talk about another time. But today we'll be talking about Blood and Treasure, Confederate Empire in the Southwest. This is the book that got me interested in Texas and the Civil War and that peculiar expedition of Sibley's that would inspire the setting for Sergio Leone's The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So thank you for coming on the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the book that started it all. So that's uh, the book that I published back in uh, 95. That was actually my dissertation. Okay. But my dissertation director was uh, Grady McQuinney, and McQuinney had a very firm admonition for his students, and that is you're not writing a dissertation, you're writing a book. He anticipated that everybody wrote a dissertation for him would have it published. Well, I was going to say it definitely, when you mention it being your dissertation, it reads like a book, though. It definitely is a book, for sure. Well, and that's, uh, McQuinney taught us to write for a, a reader. You know, so many uh, academics write for the guy down the hall. Right. Trying to impress another academic. And McQuinney was very, very uh, um, adamant that we write for the guy down the street and that we needed to make history as accessible as possible. And so that's that was the charge I took into it. Oh, and it's definitely uh, carried on through your career as you also have the YouTube channel, which is also very accessible. Yeah, you know, that's, I've always, I mean, I went into the history business in order to learn stuff and then pass it on. You know, that's what I thought we were supposed to be about. So uh, that's kind of been a guiding principle of mine. That's fantastic, especially for us who are still studying history in school and, and trying to get our credentials and do Civil War storytelling like myself, you know, that's really great sure. to hear from you. But let's, uh, let's dive into this because after reading this book, I walked away with so many questions because this is just a great story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a really wild story. And in fact, you know, if you hadn't shown all the primary sources you used, I don't think anyone would have believed you. 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. And then you there's an, an amazing array of them too, which is uh, was really surprising to me. The way that I came upon this particular topic is I was looking for the answer that I'd had since I was a kid. Uh, what did Texas do in the Civil War? And I had started out really being interested in Granberry's Brigade, to tell you the truth, because as a, as a kid, I had uh, lived in Macon, Georgia and had run across a Confederate cemetery there that was populated in part by dead Texans. I don't know if dead people can populate anything, but anyhow, there was 13 <laughs> dead Texans in this, this cemetery. And I was uh, rather intrigued because I was native of Texas, living out of state. And all of a sudden I ran across these dead Texans a long way from home as well. So that got me to thinking about Texas in the Civil War and up to that point, the answer had been, oh, they didn't do anything. You know, it was all about Virginia and right, you know, maybe right. a little bit of Tennessee, but it was really about Virginia. Gettysburg. So, um, yeah, Gettysburg. If it doesn't, you know, if it's not within 100 miles of Richmond, you know, who right. cares? And so uh, that launched me into this interesting uh, sort of path of research. But when I first went to TCU to talk about graduates, they asked me, so, well, what do you want to research? What do you want to write on? I said, oh, Granberry's Brigade. And uh, McWinney said, no, there's somebody working on that. That's overdone. What's your plan B? I said, um, how about Tom Green and Sibley's Brigade? And he said, great. Nobody's working on that. Jump on that. And so uh, I'd only heard of all of that, that New Mexico campaign, then the subsequent campaigns in Louisiana, because I had picked up a little book at the bookstore at the Confederate Memorial Hall in New Orleans when I was there on my honeymoon which is not something I like to, you know, admit that I'm going shopping at museum <laughs> gift shops on my honeymoon. And I also don't like to admit that I went to New Orleans for my honeymoon. That's a terrible idea in case it comes up. And uh, got this cool little book written by Morris Raphael, who was the editor of the New Iberian News. And there was just one of those throwaway lines that the Texans fighting in Louisiana had been fighting in New Mexico prior to that. And of course, it's almost like that sort of scratchy record sound, you know, wait, right, right. you know what? There's a civil war in New Mexico. I had no idea. And so uh, that was a new sort of intriguing idea. So when McWinney said, well, no, you can't work on the Army of Tennessee. What will you work on instead? I went, New Mexico. <laughs> so there that's you how go. I kind of backed into it. Let's let's jump into the weeds here then, because, you know, as the title sure. says, Confederate Empire. So that's one thing I, yeah. I want to kind of better understand. What is this sort of obsession with empire? And could you talk a little about that in regards to Baylor and Confederate Arizona? If you think of the uh, American Civil War as a great divorce, then the question becomes, which of the feuding spouses gets the community property? And so the community property in this case was all the territories out west. The Confederates said, well, you know, clearly we do because they're down south. And citizens in Macias, his, uh, folks in Las Cruces, even Tucson, even Southern California, were all saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're all kind of pro-south. There's even a pretty large uh, Georgia colony in the mountains of Colorado that had gone up there with a gold rush. And so it is not clear which side would end up having the most influence in the territories. So in that way, it was really a lot like the border states. So the idea behind empire is that 
we think of the Confederate states as being those nine states that end up joining the Confederacy, plus a couple more. You know, the old running joke is that Kentucky joined the Confederacy in 1866. But uh, anyhow, uh, yeah. so there was a, there were Confederate states, but then there was also areas where the Confederacy wanted to extend influence, which by definition would have made that imperial, essentially expanding your borders from their original uh, boundary. And so um, as soon as the Confederacy is formed, they start thinking about how will we assert our control over the, these Western territories. And Texas made the most sense as being the launching pad for any sort of campaign that direct. And John Robert Baylor was originally tasked with just occupying the U.S. courts along the old line of the San Antonio to El Paso Road. So he got his troops together, went out the, from San Antonio and just hopscotched all the way west, essentially dropping off garrisons at all those uh, frontier outposts until he got to El Paso. And when he gets there, the people coming down from Messiah and Las Cruces are saying, look, this part of the New Mexico territory, which is vast, uh, this particular southern tier, essentially the old Gadsden Purchase territory in the little north, pertains to the Confederacy. So you need to come in and essentially occupy that and include it in the Confederacy. So that was the first stepping out of the original boundaries into new territory. Baylor just happened to be the guy on the ground at the time. Right place, but, right time. Yeah, he's the right guy at the right time, uh, at the right place, as they say. Or maybe he wasn't the right guy, but he was certainly not afraid of uh, being ambitious. And so Baylor said, you bet, we'll go out there and we'll set up the Confederate territory of New Mexico. We'll get a, a government formed. And uh, you're right, this new territory will pertain to the Confederacy. So instead of the New Mexico Territory, which at the time was present-day New Mexico and Arizona, he said, we're going to have a Confederate Territory of Arizona, and that boundary would be an east-west line that would form a territory roughly the size and shape of Tennessee. So all of a sudden, instead of this big monolithic territory of New Mexico, you had sort of a stack with Union Territory of New Mexico above, Confederate Territory of Arizona below. But think about it from the uh, folks in that region's perspective. If you lived in Tucson and you had business with the territorial governor, you had to go from Tucson, Arizona to Santa, which was a recipe for getting your hair lifted if you weren't careful. Right. And so uh, these guys are saying, you know what? We would rather be you know, more affiliated with El Paso and then we have this road that goes into Southern California. There are folks in Southern California and Los Angeles uh, region that are, you know, we're kind of Southerners as well. We kind of like to throw in on this Confederate experiment. And so that's kind of how it all stacked out. And Baylor just had to be the face of it. This um, sort of this idea of Confederate empire, though, I wonder, is there some sort of connection about getting recognized uh, by other European nations, like if the Confederacy is able to develop an empire, it sort of shows them on the world stage, you know, as a powerful powerhouse on the world stage. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that uh, happens in the 1840s and 50s with the United States is the whole idea of manifest destiny and the United States essentially being a two ocean country, a continental power. And so if the Confederacy is merely limited to the existing slave states, cotton producing states, 
then really this is a regional conflict. And this is sort of an internal squabble with the United States. But if all of a sudden the Confederacy is a Pacific Rim nation, then all of a sudden that changes the equation. Because you got to remember what's going on with the French and the British, especially during this same time period. They're over meddling in China, even as all this stuff was going on. The French are eyeballing an excursion into Korea. They're certainly eyeballing an excursion into Indochina. And they are looking um, longingly towards Mexico. So all of a sudden, if the Confederacy is a coast-to-coast continental power, then all of a sudden, the British and the French might have some interest, might have something to say about it. And the Confederates were going, yeah, you know, as long as we're going to divvy up Mexico, the French can have the southern half, and maybe we'll pick up the northern half, and uh, maybe pick up Sonora, Chihuahua, uh, Coahuila, and uh, essentially add to the Confederate nation in that direction as well. So they, you know, in 1861, man, everything was possible. And yes, yeah. uh, all you had to do is be bold and, you know, make your statement. Uh, it wasn't until the, the harsh realities of the war uh, sank in on the Confederacy that it shifted from being a great protest movement, which in my opinion is kind of what the Confederacy was. They were never Lincolners, you know, Yeah. Uh, to uh, all of a sudden it became a uh, an attempt to really try and establish something that they hadn't thought all the way through. Right, right. You mentioned, you know, France and Mexico. And I think back on poor, uh, poor Emperor Maximilian. I don't know why I have a little soft spot for the guy. Uh, It didn't really work out for him. He's an interesting character. But another interesting character for this story, of course, is Sibley. So can we talk about who Sibley was sort of his background? And how does he come up with this plan here? We kind of need to backtrack a little bit to Baylor. Okay. Yeah. Baylor understands. Yeah, he is not the he is not the Baylor for whom Baylor University is. Baylor was a Texan of the most Texas stripe in that he uh, fought Indians. He was a frontiersman, and he was not particularly a. Uh, I don't know. It would be tough to hang with Baylor for long. Uh, he ended up before he died and went to his reward. Personally, dispatched eleven different people by his own hand. So, I mean, he is a scrappy, um, pretty dangerous, desperate sort of fellow. Okay, so he represents sort of that frontier military tradition within the American military tradition. Sibley, on the other hand, is a native of Natchitoches, Louisiana. He's regular army, went to West Point, fought in the U.S.-Mexican War, is a charming fellow. I mean, they put him on a recruitment detail. So one of the things he did in the old army is he talked people into, you know, signing up. And you uh, don't put people that aren't well met in that position. Right. You, know, you put your salesman in that position. And so uh, we first really think about Sibley when we think about a real mundane sort of article of Civil War equipment, the Sibley tent. And the Sibley tent, of course, looks like a American Indian teepee because Sibley just essentially ripped off the Comanches when he was interacting with them on the frontier of Texas and then later on at Fort Union in New Mexico. So Sibley's an inventor. He's a charming guy. He knows how to recruit folks. And when the war is upon him, when secession occurs, he's a Louisiana native stationed at a U.S. Army person at Fort Union in New Mexico territory. So he says, you know what, I'm looking around here and I'm taking inventory of what's going on in New Mexico territory. We can whip this. We can get this done. 
and he'd been stationed in Texas before, so he kind of knew what the assets were that were in the Department of Texas at the time. So he resigns his commission, heads down the Rio Grande del Paso, overland to San Antonio, from there all the way to Richmond, Virginia, with this idea that he can build upon Baylor's success. And, you know, Baylor had done all that with just 250 men. So, I mean, that's yeah. that's hardly a, a, a battalion. Yeah. And he said, you know, Baylor's got the southern part of this territory whipped and conquered. You know, if I had a real eye brigade, a mounted brigade, man, we could we could sweep all the federal authority from the region. So that's his idea. And he goes up to Richmond to sell it. Here's the sales pitch. All you guys in Richmond need to do is give me permission. I don't need money. I don't need guns. I don't need troops. I don't need anything. It's all waiting for me down in San Antonio. Goes to Richmond to pitch the president, Jefferson Davis. But when he gets there, Jeff Davis is actually up Manassas, micromanaging the aftermath of the Battle of First Manassas. And so he's just left with the Secretary of War, and Secretary of War says, all right, let me get this straight. You know, we got a lot of stuff going on here in Virginia, so make it quick. Sibley comes in and says, hey, this is going to be no cost to you, and the reward is going to be spectacular. All, all I need you guys willing to do is feed me a few regiments of Texans, which are, you know, so far from Virginia, they're not going to be useful to y'all anyway. And so Secretary of War says, you know what, sounds reasonable to me, go to work. And so Sibley goes down to San Antonio and says, all right, we need a brigade of troops that will head out west. And that's, that's the origins of the Sibley Brigade. Well, what's interesting to me is how long it takes for him to get that brigade built. So he starts calling for troops in September. He really doesn't start putting troops on the road until late October, into November. When he finally gets out to New Mexico territory, he gets to break the news to John Robert Baylor, I'm now in charge and you are not. And Baylor's going, wait a second, I'm out here. I'm, I'm the guy on the, on the ground, man. I've done all this sort of stuff. And Sibley said, well, you know, you can be the territorial governor, but see, I'm the pro and I represent the will of the Confederate nation. You're a mere Texan. Mm. And so let the pros come in and take over and you can have your sort of supporting role. And you know, Baylor wasn't too keen on that. He was not particularly yeah, I can happy imagine. <laughs> in But that's kind of the interesting personalities uh, that are involved at the very beginning of the campaign. Right. Well, can we uh, back up a little bit about uh, sure. Sibley's brigade itself? Who, who were the type of people who made up that brigade? Because I find that very interesting. I've like reading through your book, I've seen Texas Rangers, you know, soldiers of fortune, it seems like it was a really wide array of people that were attracted to such an expedition. It, it was a very interesting mix. Uh, so we're talking about the 4th, 5th, and 7th Texas Mounted Volunteers. So that's their designation to begin with. They make a couple of artillery batteries out of some uh, mountain howitzers that they picked up at the Alamo uh, Arsenal. And then they had a battery of uh, six-pounders. Uh, by Trevanian Teal, led by Captain Trevanian Teal. So it's a, uh, it's a mobile brigade, and it is composed of the following type folks. Confederate hotspurs that are ready to go. Some that have been filibusters down in Central America and Sonora right. and elsewhere. So these are Westerners. Uh, some Texas Rangers, but, you know, Texas Rangers in the 1850s are different than Texas Rangers today. You know, today they're a professional sort of state FBI uh, adjunct right. of the highway patrol. 
back then they were essentially just a mounted state militia. And so calling somebody a Texas Ranger in the 1850s tells you that they were willing to go on campaign for a summer against Indians or whomever needed to be campaigned against. But they weren't necessarily what I would call, you know, an elite necessarily. They were just willing. And they had a horse right. and a good firearm, you know. So one of the things that I was able to do with that, um, the analysis of the brigade is run down just about all of them, a large percentage of them in the 1860 census. So I could figure out where they came from. And the number one place of nativity was Mississippi. Wow. So the majority of civil brigade are actually natives of Mississippi, uh, leavened with uh, other southern states, mostly deep south states. Very few native Texans, but there's quite a few guys with northern nativity. And one of the guys I quote was actually from New Jersey. And he said he joined in that campaign out into New Mexico because, A, it looked like it was going to be fairly bloodless, and, B, the chances of him having to fight somebody else from New Jersey looked to be pretty slim. So the the motivations for going out with this this brigade uh, are extraordinarily varied. So he was from New Jersey, had moved to Texas. Correct. And was in Texas when the brigade was forming up. Okay. Wow. Right. He, he said, you know what, if I, if I stick around here sooner or later, I might actually have to get into some serious shooting and killing. Right. And if all right. I have to do is a long ride out to Santa Fe, hey, that's not too fun bad to see the country. You know? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. And their their uniforms, did they have a, a proper uniform that they all uh, wore or was it more of a mismatch type of you thing? Know, it's, um, Kind of a, it's a mix of all that, actually. If you take a look at some of the photographs of the participants in Sibley's Brigade, uh, they're mostly wearing battle shirts, sort of homespun like you see in a bunch of the early campaigns, like Wilson's Creek, for instance. So not a whole lot of uniformity, except that there's some examples of officers who have had finely tailored uniforms. There's a uh, uniform example from a Captain Cleaver that was in the 7th Texas Cavalry that had been part of the collection at the Confederate Museum up in Richmond. And it is as good a uniform as you're likely to see anywhere in the country, a Confederate uniform, and extraordinarily well-preserved. So those that could, especially officers, were getting the specs. You know, they're Googling, you know, Confederate uniform, what's yeah. it supposed to look like? <laughs> and uh, they, they essentially had the local, you know, tailor make it for them. Uh, but you had guys showing up, you know, come as you are. And uh, they were bringing their own horse, their own firearm, and their own, their own gear. So it was a real mixed, mixed bag. Texas Rangers, cowpokes, vaqueros, and bronco busters. These were the men who rode with Sibley. Texans in the war often displayed their allegiance with a star pin or fob. Get yours today at www.civilwarcorebadges.com. Link in the show notes. And rank yourself among those rough and readies who inspired the likes of Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach. Well, you mentioned that the bringing their own gear, their own firearms, but I got to ask something about lances, right? Yeah. Well, you know, there was a whole stack of lances at the Alamo arsenal. And so as the Confederate authorities, the state authorities in Texas are going through the inventory, they said, Oh man, you know, we, we got lances. And these are probably lances that were prizes of war from the U.S.-Mexican War. And so they just kind of threw them all in the corner. And they had enough to equip three companies of lancers. 
when the uh, U.S. forces had fought against Mexican lancers, the Mexican lancers were really good. I mean, they a high degree of discipline. A lancer charge is terrifying. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter Absolutely. who you ask. Uh, nobody wants to, to face the pointy end of a stick, man, especially at velocity from a horse. Absolutely. And so um, the cachet of lancers was there, plus the idea that, well, we've got them. Maybe we could use them. And so there's actually three companies outfitted with lances. Finally, one of them says, eh, we'd rather not. <laughs> and so yeah. they kind of sat there and And so you end up having two companies of lancers uh, to go along with a bunch of guys that are firing shotguns and mixed assortment of pistols and, you know, a couple of Hall's carbines, Hall rifles uh, left over from the U.S.-Mexican War, some uh, 42 smoothbores, you name it. So uh, it is really a... a a mixed bag going out there to New Mexico. So now they're they're going to head out on this expedition, this campaign. And as you talked about our our New Jersey friend who said this would be, yeah, you know, an, a nice little uh, ride, a little adventure. But uh, it is pretty tedious. They they do bump into a very harsh winter, right? They do. And and the path from San Antonio to El Paso. So I mean, picture this in your mind, Sibley forms the brigade into a big brigade square on Alamo Plaza. So, I mean, you've got the Alamo as the backdrop. Fantastic. This Confederate expedition that's heading out to El Paso. So he feeds his brigade out in about a week interval. So you would have two companies go out, wait a week, two more companies go out. And the idea is that that would not over um, extend the grass and water supply along the route. And so you have this brigade that is strung out for weeks and weeks heading out there. And, you know, the winter closes in. They're going into winter months because they think, well, this will be better because uh, it won't be as hot. But it also brings with it all sorts of other weather. Then when the brigade gets out to New Mexico and they finally reform in January, and I can tell you from that cold snap we had, you know, I don't know, right before Valentine's Day, when it decides to get cold on you down here, it'll get really cold on you. And so these guys are down in New Mexico. They're they're green, just absolutely green. They have no experience at this. You know, everybody says, oh, well, they're Texans. Well, certainly they're half man, half horse. Well, these guys are actually just warmed over Mississippians that are <laughs> coming from East Texas and heading out there. And right. they've never been on this big an adventure. So they do things like they turn the horses out onto the growing crop fields, you know, to let them eat down the stubble and stuff. And then they don't guard the horses. So the local Apaches come in and move a bunch of their mounts, move a bunch of their mules. And so the, the, the mobility of the brigade is almost immediately crippled just from the trip of getting out there and the lack of discipline of the troops when they get there. I imagine, as with most campaigns, sickness also affected, no? Yeah, they, you know, there was a, a pretty good run of illness that goes through that brigade, but nothing like you see up in Virginia and in mm. other eastern theaters primarily because these guys were moving in a lot smaller units and they're also not staying in one spot very long and essentially befouling the water supply and other things that cause that. The guys that end up getting sick are the ones that are left in garrisons and things like that. Right. Uh, the maneuver elements that are actually out in the field actually uh, stay fairly healthy. I, I was uh, pretty, pretty intrigued by that very question of, you know, where are all the sick guys, where are the hospitals? 
So El Paso, you have a hospital because that's where they're hanging out before they launch into the campaign. But uh, mostly the health of the unit's pretty good. Other than they pretty quickly start to run out of flour and uh, any sort of carbohydrate base. So anybody that's been on a keto diet understands that you start jonesing for some yeah. <laughs> <laughs> saltine cracker sounds good, man. Yeah. When you've eaten nothing meat and bacon and cheese, you know. Yeah. And so that's the one thing these guys start talking about is, you know, my gosh, it sure would be nice to have some hardtack. Right. And I never, ever thought I'd ever read a Civil War account where somebody was praising hardtack yeah. so yeah. that they could have some variety in their diet. Well, I just um, thought it was interesting because when I was reading these passages and reading about how cold it was, even reading about a little bit of a frost and sometimes yeah. snow or something, I, I honestly could not picture it because I thought there's no way in that part of the country that it, it must get that cold. But we've seen just recently how cold it can oh, get. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I live down here in the hill country and we had 10 inches of snow. I mean, that's a that's a decent snowfall no matter where you live absolutely and so uh yeah. and all that that cold weather coming down off the rocky mountains and sort of the the petering out of the rocky mountains that heads down into southern new mexico el paso is a whole different climate zone than the rest of texas and it can get really really uh really really brisk out there and the wind certainly blows when the guys get out there and they look around and say man it's bleak and it's snowy and it's cold and this norther comes through and the wind's blowing so hard that it's picking up pebbles and stinging their face, you yeah. know? And they're like, wow. One of them writes home and says, you know what? New Mexico is the biggest trick that the nation of Mexico ever played on the U.S., making us take this place off their hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they just cannot believe that they're going on an adventure in the dead of winter in New Mexico. It is nothing like they had hoped. Right. It's not this Garden of Eden. They, they <laughs> no. A land of enchantment, they say. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, we keep talking about uh, the Confederate side. But there's another yeah. side uh, to this whole story, and there's a bunch of federal troops waiting for him. Could you give a little yeah. background on Canby and Kit Carson? Absolutely. So when the federal government faces this crisis, this crisis of secession and how to respond, they have most of their regular army deployed in the Southwest. And so they're desperate for a cadre of experienced troops, trained soldiers, and they also want to make sure that they can keep their eyes on them because they've got people that are leaving the regular army right. and heading over to the new Confederate army. So the first thing they do is say, all right, all you guys in the Southwest head east, and we want you guys to start heading back in and helping us build the core of an army with which we will fight this rebellion. And so all of a sudden troops are leaving New Mexico territory at the exact same time that the Confederates are thinking about heading to New Mexico territory. So a bunch of the old frontier regiments, which are broken into company-sized units and scattered all over the place, are starting to lead out. So we're talking about 1st Dragoon, 2nd Dragoons, the old regiment of mounted rifles, which is uh, now the 1st and 2nd Dragoons are 1st and 2nd Cavalry. The regiment of mounted rifles is 3rd U.S. Cavalry, and then you have the 2nd U.S., well, the 1st and 2nd U.S. Cavalries, which are now the 4th and 5th U.S. Cavalry. So if that's not confusing enough. Uh, so you have all these old frontier uh, mounted units and also a number of uh, infantry units that are scattered. About half of them head east, 
and are essentially taken off the board of play before the local authorities out there say, look, the Rebs are coming here. And so you can't just take all these guys away. We got to have some of them here to hold the line. We'll supplement them with volunteers, but give us, you know, throw us a bone here, man. Yeah. You can't have all the, the old U.S. Army form up in Virginia or in Missouri and expect us to stave off this invasion just with a bunch of guys that you know, just now learning which end of the gun goes towards the enemy, you know. So that's, uh, Canby is really the author of that, this sort of stop loss. We don't, we can't send any more troops back east. At least let me have them long enough to get an army formed out here. So what he very brilliantly does is he calls for volunteers from Kansas, from Colorado, from California, and also New Mexico. So that's where Kit Carson comes in. Kit Carson is like the superhero of New Mexico. Right. This is a guy that started out being, you know, mountain man that could, you know, find places through the mountains nobody else could. During the U-Mexican War, he traversed, you know, from New Mexico to California two, maybe three times carrying dispatches and stuff. This guy is a tough hombre, but he's also a little long in the tooth, but he is widely respected. So Canby says, all right, I want to make you the guy that raises the volunteers here in New Mexico. Kid Carson says, great. And he ends up uh, forming the first New Mexico volunteers as his contribution to the effort of defending the territory. Meanwhile, there is a brigade of Californians that are forming. There's a brigade of Coloradans that is forming by brigade. I'm talking about two regiments, maybe three regiments, both cases. And there's a uh, brigade forming around Fort Leavenworth, Kansas that involves troops from Wisconsin and Kansas. You know, it's Canby understands that he needs an avalanche of troops to all converge on New Mexico. What he has at hand though, right there in the Rio Grande Valley, is probably the equivalent of a regiment and a half of U.S. regulars and probably two regiments of New Mexico volunteers. So he's on par with what Sibley's bringing, maybe a little under strength. He's long on artillery. He's got some good artillery, but he also has all the supplies. So he says, all right, what we need to do is we need to essentially hold out long enough for all these other converging columns to get here. And then uh, we'll be able to gain the upper hand, the strategic initiative. So he is playing uh, something of a uh, Fabian tactic here. He's going to swap uh, territory for time. Right. And he decides that he's going to make his stand at Fort Craig, which is south of Socorro, New Mexico. He's going to put all of his supplies inside that fortification, inside those works. He digs out work. It's an adobe-walled uh, fortification. He supplements it with earthworks and stacks enough groceries in there to where they can hold out for months. And says, all right, this will be kind of the cork in the bottle. And this is where we'll make stand. We'll keep them tied up here long enough that the other columns coming in can converge at Fort Union, which is northeast of Santa Fe, and also come in from Fort Yuma in Southern California, heading this way through places like Tucson, and essentially come in on El Paso from the west, and essentially knock the legs of the Confederates out from under. Right. So that's the Union plan. And so Sibley does finally get to Fort Craig, and he decides not to do a frontal assault, right? Well, what he does is classic Civil War. He uh, sends a rider in, says, all right, we got you where we want you. Now it's your turn to surrender. <laughs> and yeah. Kenby said, you know, I appreciate the invitation, but I think I'll pass. And so the, uh, the Confederates uh, probed the defenses 
And so there's some skirmishing south of Fort Craig and they come back and say, man, there's just no good option here. You know, if we try right. to go over those earthworks and stuff, we're going to get clobbered. Uh, these guys are strong. Sibley's thinking, well, you know, can we bypass them? And the problem is he's already running low on groceries. So his supplies are running short. And the loss of vehicles and the animals drawn while they were just gathering around El Paso starting to tell. They have not been able to bring enough equipment with them for a sustained campaign. So his idea is I've got enough ammunition for two battles and I have enough groceries for about another week. I've got to force a de decisive encounter right here. And if we can't go over them, then we'll go around them and make them come to us. He sends his scouts out. They come back and say, look, we can bypass them by heading around to the east of Fort Craig by crossing the Rio Grande, heading into this godforsaken expanse of, of volcanic gullies and old ancient lava fields filled with sand. And then we'll come back around north of Fort Craig at a ford called Valverde, the Green Valley, essentially one of the big sort of last stops before caravans during the Spanish and Mexican colonial periods uh, before you jumped off into a stretch of desert known as El Jornada del Muerte, wow. which is, you know, the journey of, you know, man's journey, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that is, whenever you see a sign that says Jornada del Muerte, that's a terrible place to be. Yeah, and yeah. And so Valverde was, a, that, that's the kind of territory these guys are maneuvering in. So there's the sort of strategic conundrum. So he does what you're supposed to do form into a fight on ground of your choosing. So he goes around to the east of Fort Craig and it's a dry camp. Well, his animals are all nuts. You know, they they can smell water down in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, they know it's right they're there. They're up here and all this. Yeah, it's right there. They know it's there. I mean, they may be mules, but they're not dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, they break in the middle of the night and all leave and go down to water which means that now all of a sudden Sibley has rations for five days. He's just got no way to holler. And so he ends up essentially burning the wagons that he no longer has transportation for and no locomotive power for. Right. And I've actually been to the site where those wagons burned. And it's interesting, the rims of those wheels are still sticking up out of the sand. The, the, the strapping on the ration boxes are still you know, sticking up out of the sand. But tell you what kind of country it is, as I'm sitting there looking at that, a sidewinder rattlesnake went between me and all that wreckage. And I was like, uh, oh man, this is a long way. And it's an hour and a half off any paved road too. So it's remote. So the, the Rebs now all of a sudden have probably three days worth of groceries and they have to make this happen. So they go over to Valverde and, you know, Kit Carson and Canby, They've already smelled, sniffed them out. They know what's going on. So they've already crossed over at Valverde, and they're pinning the Confederates now against this godforsaken terrain behind them. Right. And Confederates really don't know what to do now. They're kind of stuck. And the Federals have better weapons. So they are shooting at the Confederates with artillery and small arms, and the Confederates can't even respond. They, don't even, they can't even get the range. Right. And so there's the Federals are slowly but surely driving them back into this inhospitable terrain. And finally, Tom Green goes to Sibley and says, hey, you know, what are we doing here, boss? Somebody needs to give us some instruction. And Sibley has retired to his wagon 
because he has a medical condition. So he may be charming, he may be a good salesman, but he's got terrible kidneys. He has chronic kidney stones mm. that he self-medicates with whiskey, which probably then exacerbates the chronic kidney stones. Right. So he's in this sort of health cycle that's not particularly useful, and he's just wrecked. Right. And Green says, boss, what are we done? And Sibley says, well, I don't know. It's what are you doing because I'm too sick to fight. Right. So Green goes down to the battlefield, looks around, says, well, when in doubt, gallop. And so he tells the guys they're pivoting. The, the Federals are pivoting at the north end of their line. So they're pivoting by their right. Yeah. So if we charge and destroy that pivot point, and that pivot point is a collection of artillery led by an officer named McCray. If we carry that federal artillery position to the frontal assault, we will unhinge their turning movement, and uh, that'll be it for them. And so yeah. he turns around and says, all right, guys, let's go. Now, in the middle of all this fighting and maneuvering, uh, they had tried a decisive lancer charge. Yes. You know, they brought the lancer. <laughs> they might as well try them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, they thought maybe if they charged these lancers out against the Federals, that that would make them, you know, break and run. And they saw a group of Colorado volunteers, some of the first reinforcements from that territory, Said, oh, we'll go hit those Coloradans because they're green and they'll be afraid and they won't know what to do. And when the uh, Lancers charged into the Coloradans, Coloradans tell the ground to mow them down. I mean, it was an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. And the uh, so that that didn't force uh, that was not a, a a force of decision or a point of decision in the fight. So Green says, "All right, let's go over and take McRae's battery. Essentially, one, two, three, everybody go long." And uh, that's what they did. And they went and carried McRae's battery uh, at the uh, point of the pistol and the point, the muzzle of their shotguns. Yeah. Carried it, unhinged the uh, the federal plan. Candy looked around, said, all right, they kind of they kind of scored some points on this one. Right. And the New Mexico volunteers are going, wait, you know, this isn't good. Now they've got the cannons. We wanted the cannons. Right. And so Candy plays it safe because he knows he's in a position to last. Yeah. So he just says, all right, fine. Battle's over. Everybody back across the river. We'll gather at Fort Craig and let them come to us again. Okay. Because he doesn't have supplies. He has a magazine, in, in essence. So after the fight, the Rebs are going, yay, we won. We've proven we can do it. They yeah. go and send a dispatch rider to the fort. Says, look, we whipped you. Now it's your turn to surrender. Canby says, you know, I just don't think I'm going to. I appreciate the offer, but we don't have to. You know, you want us to surrender? Come on in, man. There's plenty of room for all you guys. Yeah. And so now Sibley's got enough ammunition for one battle and about two and a half days rations. Well, yeah. it's probably five days back to the base in El Paso, but he can get to Albuquerque in two and a half days. So he essentially leaves an intact enemy army in his rear to march to Albuquerque out of necessity, just yeah. hoping that there's enough groceries there to keep his brigade from falling apart. And that's well, uh, kind of the next phase of the campaign. Right. And, and before we get too far off this, because there's a lot of things I'd like to ask about uh, Valverde. Um, first sure, of sure. all, you mentioned uh, Tom Green. So could you go in a little bit detail about Green? Because he does have an interesting background as well, just like Sibley. He does. So Tom Green is another one of those you know, Texas examples of the frontier military tradition. He had first come to Texas in time to fight at the Battle of San Jacinto during the War for Independence, the Texas Revolution. 
and I actually uh, helped man the twin sisters, the two pieces of artillery that Sam Houston's army carried uh, with them to the Battle of San Jacinto. That's his first taste of combat. He's a 21-year-old kid from Tennessee whose dad said, sure, you can go to Texas, but as soon as you're done, you have to come back and finish law school, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so he goes to Texas, participates in that grand adventure, goes back to Tennessee, uh, finishes up his education, and then goes back to Texas in order to find uh, locate his head rights. I mean, all these uh, veterans of the Texas War for Independence uh, are given essentially land and payment. So he knows that he's got a farm waiting on him in Texas. All he has to do is to hire a surveyor to go find it. He settles in LaGrange, Texas, dabbles in politics, but is not particularly fond of it. In fact, what he prefers doing is being the engrossing clerk. So he's got really nice handwriting and he's very smart. So he becomes the guy that essentially chronicles the day-to-day uh, -day business of the Texas legislature and then finally shifts over to the Texas Supreme Court. And so that's his, that's his day job. But he's also, a, you know, like most young men on the make in Texas, he's willing to go on campaigns as a ranger against whoever needs to be campaigned right. against. And during the Republic of Texas period, that's Mexicans and Comanches. So he's on in campaigns against uh, various incursions from the Republic of Mexico and also fighting mainly uh, Pinoteca, uh, Comanche, Southern Comanche uh, in uh, Central and Northwest Texas. So he's messing around on the, the Rio Grande. He's also messing around in the Upper Hill Country. And then he's also hanging out in Austin doing all sorts of official duties. And ultimately he'll move his operation, his uh, homestead to Austin. When the U.S.-Mexican War breaks out, he joins Jack Hayes' uh, regiment. So John Coffey Hayes was sort of the Rangers Ranger uh, during the uh, Republic of Texas period. And uh, if you're going to be with the cool kids, you join Jack Hayes' regiment, as opposed to Woods' regiment of Texas Rangers, which is the second regiment of Texas Mounted Volunteers. You want to be in Hayes' first regiment, Texas Mounted Volunteers, when you go into Mexico. So he's there with a bunch of notables. I mean, McCullough's in the unit. You've got Addison Gillespie, who was a famous ranger in the Republic period. Uh, so you have a bunch of, of names. Uh, these are names all over Texas counties today. Campaigning with that regiment, Green proved himself a capable soldier, a brave soldier, as he did fighting against Mexicans during the Republic period and also against Comanche. So he's no slouch. He knows how to uh, handle himself under, under fire. And uh, when Hayes' regiment reaches the termination of its enlistment, uh, Zachary Taylor sends them home. Says, you know, I like you guys, but y'all are kind of a pain in the neck to control. Right. And they're doing things like depredating against civilians and things that kind of make an occupation army's chore a little complicated. Right. So he invites all the Texans to get the hell out of Mexico. You know, so you guys head back to Texas and be done with it. And so um, he had a rival in the regiment, a guy named uh, Walker. And Green and Walker are kind of always neck and neck trying to prove who's toughest because they're both in love with the same woman. Ah, uh, Molly see? Colder. Yeah, see, they've got their court in the same girl. And wouldn't you know it, they've both survived <laughs> the campaigns against Monterey in the Mexican War. And so uh, they head back into Texas and walker chooses to go back 
with uh, Jack Hayes and form a uh, sort of a scouting company for Winfield Scott's invasion down in central Mexico. And Green stays in Austin and marries Molly Chalmers. So he decides to go domestic. And sure enough, Walker not only uh, helps invent a very powerful pistol, the Walker Dragoon, yeah. but he gets killed in combat. So now the romantic rival is removed. Green gets married, has a nice, uh, happy life. But he finds Texas to be outrageously boring in the late 1840s and into the 1850s. Which I can't I mean, imagine anyone Hayes. saying that, but, you know. Well, you know, all, all the Indians have been kind of driven away. You know, Mexico now is no longer the rival. And yeah. even Jack Hayes quits Mexico. I mean, Jack Hayes moves to California during the gold rush. So does Ben McCullough. Yeah. And they're all out there going, man, this is where the action is. And Green's going, well... I've kind of got this old ball and chain that I married, you know, yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but his, his in-laws both died and he inherited all of his, uh, his siblings-in-law. So he's got all wow. these younger brothers and sisters-in-law that he now has to raise. And so he has gone from being a swashbuckling, you know, man on a horse to being a family man. Yeah, And all of his buddies are heading out to California, you know. He uh, essentially throws himself into his work. He's gone from home a lot, as it turns out, because the Supreme Court of Texas is on a uh, circuit that he uh, travels on. But he has this reputation for being a Texan's Texan, if there is such a thing. So when secession occurs, all of a sudden the old sap is rising in the wood, you know. <laughs> he, he absolutely understands that this is my chance to do something brave and bold again. And his dad writes from Tennessee and says, son, you know, you're crowding 50. And you know very well that all that action in the field is a young man's game. Right. And Green says, look, you know, I would go with certainty. I would go into the army, even if I knew with certainty that I would fall in the first volley, because the injuries are fresher with us than they will be with our our children so we know what these what these northerners really have in mind for us which is subjugation they're not going to be happy until we're just like them. and he says uh i would enlist to face those self-righteous witch burning nasal twain yankees wow. if i knew i would fall in the first volley so he yeah. he clearly didn't like northerners he, no. he thought that they were meddling in affairs that, they, that didn't pertain to them now, what's interesting is John C. Hemphill is the head of the Texas Supreme Court. Hemphill is a big states' rights theorist, and Green is his secretary. So oh, well, there what you you're go. really reading, yeah. yeah, there you go. So what you're reading in Green is he is uh, his mentor has taught him states' rights ideology right. and uh, theory, and that's what he's reflecting on. So he said also to his father in a subsequent letter. The entire state of Texas looks to be to take a role in this conflict. So he felt this sort of public expectation that he should go. Green is a, uh, he's a scrappy frontier warrior uh, with considerable skills. And the one thing that he is, is decisive. He doesn't sit there and wonder, well, should I do A or should I do B? Right. He goes, A'll do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll do whatever comes to mind. And, uh, on the battlefield at Valverde, that proves decisive. And under normal circumstances, just that act alone should have made him a brigadier general. I mean, absolutely should have. And the news coming out of New Mexico is green is a hoss. 
And yes. so he's a, he, he's the hero of the Battle of Valverde. No, absolutely. Another question I have about Valverde. So what I was trying to understand was how the Union troops, federal troops, put the river to their back. And I thought that would yeah. be such a tactical no-no. You know, you don't want the river at your back. And you sort of see that when they retreat, it sort of really bites them in the butt. Why do they do that? What what is the is that goal what you mentioned before because you don't want the confederates to get access to the river? Yeah, you think about it the the confederates have made a dry camp night before. Right. And so they're already thirsty and they've got terrible no-go terrain to their rear. So Canby's gambling that if he controls the fords at Valverde, then that river to his rear will not be as big an obstacle to him as the terrain behind the confederates is to them. Right. So it's a calculated okay. risk. And the uh, the other salient terrain feature is the Mesa de la Contera, which is the big, it's essentially a, vol- a lava flow that just stops and forms into kind of a big flat top mesa. Yeah. But really what it is is just where the lava stops. Uh, and it's the Mesa de la Contadera because the local herdsmen would run their sheep up there counting because there's only really one way in and one way out. Right. That that dominating terrain feature pretty quickly falls into Union hands. So you can kind of cover the fords at the same time. So it's a calculated risk. And he figures that all he has to do is get the Confederates to break. If he can get them to break and run, they'll be running into the sand and into the lava, the lava fields. Right. And uh, that'll be it. Their unit cohesion will absolutely disintegrate. But he didn't come to that up that arrangement immediately he thought about it and he stayed on the other side of the river and you know sent some guys across the river to kind of scout them out and he figured out wait i've got the range on these guys so all i gotta do is just keep them under fire and slowly grind them back the day is out yeah so it was a calculated risk but not everybody knows how to cross a river under fire without losing their head right (laughs) so when he starts withdrawing from the uh, east bank of the Rio Grande over to the west bank, a bunch of his units get intermingled. The uh, command and control starts to dissolve. The Confederates have seized their artillery. They're starting to lob shots in and amongst them. And it becomes something of a stampede back to Fort Craig. Yeah. And so if you're a Confederate observer, you're going, yeah, these guys are whipped. Look at them. They're acting whipped. So all we got to do is go and inform them that they are indeed whipped yeah. and they'll give up. But they weren't as whipped as they looked. Right, right. And when they got back to the fort, they were still pretty much well set, set up there to uh, hold out. Yeah. They, you know, they, I don't think they realized that Sibley would sort of pass or tr- attempt to pass them like that because I don't think they knew Sibley was so desperate. <laughs> yeah, they, if they could have, they could have had a crystal ball and see just how short rationed yeah. the Confederates were about to be. They might have sallied out of that fort to go rack them up. Right, right. But they didn't. Right. They didn't. And they said, no, it's it's more prudent to stay here. And so Sibley moves forward, and we move into the, the next portion of the campaign here. And speaking of the next portion of the campaign, you know, you got to talk about a little bit of the aftermath of the battle itself, the casualties, casualties on both sides. What happens to the Lancers? I know we're down to two companies. One company gets destroyed, right? So the other company says, who wants to fight with sticks anyway? (laughs) And so (laughs) that's the end of the, uh, of the uh, Lancer application uh, out there. Uh, Everybody goes to small arms. The, uh, the 
Falls County Rangers that had made the, the Lancer charge, their shots at smithereens. Captain's been horribly and fatally wounded. They're done. But as far as casualties go, almost the entire 4th Texas Cavalry has, or 4th Texas Mounted Volunteers at the time, has lost their mounts because wow. they tied their horses up behind them, deployed, uh, dismounted. But the uh, federal rounds were going past them as they're hiding down in an old stream bed of the Rio Grande and the overshoots are killing their horses. And so now all of a sudden you have a mounted brigade where a third of it isn't really mounted anymore. So you've got that issue. Mobility crippled, your tactical mobility's crippled, your strategic mobility's crippled. You don't have animals to draw your wagons. The Confederates have captured some Union artillery, but you know, now all of a sudden they have to figure, you know, move horses over there to haul them off and and use them because a bunch of those horses are dead as well. It is a crippled command. They have uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of wounded guys. So they've got wounded to deal with. They've lost uh, you know, a couple of dozen just dead outright. They buried them on the field. And so they head up to Socorro, and that's where they leave their wounded. And from Socorro, they limp on up the Rio Grande to Albuquerque, knowing full well that those guys in Socorro are going to be captured, but right. they just got no way to follow. So in terms of a victory, it is a Confederate victory, but it is a Pyrrhic victory. And so um, once they get up to Albuquerque, they do discover rations. And so now the Confederates have maybe a month worth of food that they've captured. They've got blankets, they've got equipment, but now they have a Union Army behind them at Fort Craig. And then there's a Union Army forming ahead of them at Fort Union. Right. So they're literally between two different Union armies, either one of which is about equal to their strength. You know, what do you do? And oh. do, you, do you go north and try to whip them? Do you head double back south to try to reduce Fort Craig? You can't do both. And so Sidley Gambles says, ah, we're going to go north and we're going to go see what's going on up at Fort Union. To do that, he actually sends uh, Baylor's old unit. Baylor's been left behind in the Confederate territory of Arizona to be its governor and hating every second of it. But his 250-man unit, the 2nd Texas Mounted Rifles, they lead the way. They take Santa Fe. They're uh, followed up with some uh, follow-on forces from the uh, 4th and the 5th Texas Cavalry or Mounted Volunteers, some guys from the 7th. They take Santa Fe and say, okay, we've captured a little more rations, maybe another week's worth of rations here. I guess we go against Fort Union, see what we got. So they head through Glorietta Pass. And Glorietta Pass is, uh, anybody that's been to the Glorietta Baptist encampment, they've actually been staying on the battlefield. But there's essentially, uh, what's that, I-25 that goes through there now? And that's the route they're going towards Fort Union. The garrison of Fort Union actually sallies out and you have a meeting engagement in Glorietta Pass. And the vanguard of the Federals impacts with the vanguard of the Confederates. Both sides fight each other, and they both back up. So the Federals are composed of elements of the 1st Colorado Volunteers, which is mixed mounted in, in uh, infantry, but also some of the old regulars that are up there as well. The vanguard of the Confederates is the second Texas Mounted Volunteer. This first little dust up is called the Battle of Apache Canyon, and it's indecisive. Both sides now know that the other side is on the way. So both sides decide to back up and wait for the other guy to make the first move. Apache Canyon's on the 26th. Both sides spent the 27th of March, 1862. We didn't give the date of Valverde. That's the 21st of February. 
right. of 1862. Patchy Canyon's 26th of March, so we're now a month down the timeline. And all the while, the Confederates are eating rations, <laughs> and their supply list is getting lower. So they're back to the point now to where they have to make something happen. But on the 27th of March, both sides wait to see what the other guys are going to do. They both decide, wait, they're waiting for us to come to them. So we'll go to them. So you have another meeting engagement that both sides go <laughs> to uh, try to find out what the other guys are doing. And yeah. that meeting engagement on the 28th is the Battle of Glorietta, Glorietta Pass. One of the things that the Federals do that is brilliant is they uh, have some locals, some locals that are in the New Mexico militia. And they say, look, you know, while we're keeping them busy right here in the pass down in the low, low country, I can guide you up and over Glorietta Mesa, and you can fall in on their rear. Uh, If we do that, we can fall in on their um, supply lines and uh, get in behind them and bottle them up in this pass, a very narrow pass. So they do send that flanking uh, maneuver across Glorietta Mesa over some very, very tough terrain. Meanwhile, the Confederates hit the Federals in Glorietta Pass and drive them. The Confederates are winning, and the Federals are giving ground, and and they're falling back towards uh, Fort Union, and it looks like, wow, you know, the Rebs are going to force us out of Glorietta Pass. When it starts to get late in the day, starting to get dark, riders come in from Apache Canyon, the mouth of Glorietta Pass, and they say, guess what? We may have won over here at Glorietta Pass, but while we were driving the Federals here, they snuck in behind us and burned our wagons (laughs) so now the revs have all of their spare ammunition goes up and all of their food goes up so they're a long way away from anywhere that could sustain a campaign and the only thing that kept those soldiers fed those confederate soldiers fed after glorietta is they happened to find several big bundles of dried buffalo meat there in glorietta pass at a trading post so they're all gnawing on buffalo jerky and they have no choice but to march right back to Santa Fe. So the Battle of Glorietta Pass is the high water mark. Right. And it's a, again, tactical victory for the Confederates, but a strategic disaster. And so that sort of brings a, a close to that, that campaign, right? And they have to start, yeah. the Confederacy does have to retreat, or the Sibley's Brigade has to retreat. Uh, how does that retreat go for Sibley? Well, they, that brigade essentially becomes militarily ineffective <laughs> as right. a result of that retreat. They make it down to Albuquerque fairly intact. Now, remember, I, I talked about Glorietta Pass, but I didn't mention Tom Green. I thought he was the hottest guy, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, Sibley kept Green close to him at their base in Albuquerque. And so that whole fight up in uh, Glorietta Pass was conducted by William Reed Scurry who's lieutenant colonel of the uh, 4th Texas Cavalry or 4th Texas Mounted Volunteers. Green wants to go up there and mix it up, but Sibley won't let him. But what that means is Green is in position to cover the retreat. And so as the Army leaves Santa Fe and heads back to Albuquerque, Green goes up there and deploys, makes sure nobody's chasing them, decides that nobody's chasing them, and decides to have a big party at Peralta. So everybody's fandangoing, they're dancing with the local women, and they're roaring drunk, and the Federals did pursue them, (laughs) and they did fall on them at Peralta, and the uh, Confederates all have to kind of speed up their timetable, and they fall back into Albuquerque, and they say, oh, we got to go. You know, they're hard on our heels, and they're also at Fort Craig. We're about to be smashed in this. 
right. uh, hot box, and we don't have enough ammo to fight them. So they say, all right, what we're going to do, we're going to try to sneak around Fort Craig by going west of the Rio Grande and through the mountain west of Fort Craig. Well, they're not that sneaky. They're dribbling gear. They're dribbling men the whole route. Yeah. So, I mean, you'd have to be a blind scout to not figure out that this army's unraveled. Right. So the report's going back, hey, these guys are unraveling. All we got to do is go and give them a flight invitation to the prison pen, and they'll be happy to take it because they're out of food, they're out of water, they're out of morale. Can we can see them going up in the mountains? And so finally, so I said, well, why don't we just go round them up? These guys are whipped. He yeah. says, are you crazy? Then I'd have to feed them. So let them starve up in the mountains. They thought right. this was such a great idea. Get them sorted out now. And so finally, the, the Confederates were able to get around Fort Craig largely unmolested and finally get down into the Las Cruces El Paso corridor down there. And they're pretty much done. I mean, the finally get back to their base of supplies so they can eat now, but they've got no flour. There's no flour to be had. So they were talking about eating the ribs off of some poor old head oxen and things like that. Mm. And uh, it's pretty clear that this campaign's over. Sibley heads on to Richmond to make his report that, hey, man, you know, we could have done it if somebody had sustained us. You know, it's not my fault. I told you guys you would have to support it. Well, turns out we needed y'all to support it. So he goes to Richmond to kind of face the music. Tom Green, you would think, would be left in charge. Doesn't get the word that he's been promoted. So he's kind of looking around going, what do you, what's a guy got to do around here? To right. Promote? And uh, he, he makes the walk back to uh, San Antonio. So he heads back to San Antonio. They leave William Steele with a half regiment of the 7th Texas Mounted Volunteers to kind of hold the line. They round up rations from all the locals. So if you're a local Spanish-speaking inhabitant of the lower Rio Grande, the Confederates come and steal your cattle and all your corn. So that makes you a little cranky. So you yeah. start shooting Confederates, which then starts a sort of partisan war down there. So finally, the Confederates give it up. They leave all that territory behind them, and they all kind of go dragging into uh, San Antonio. And they finally get, the last guy there gets there about August. So they get to do a uh, long march in the howling winter, and then another long hard march in the heat of summer and largely without horses. So it was a, uh, a terrible, unmitigated disaster for that brigade. Canby's ecstatic. He's whipped them without having to whip them hard. He sends word to the brigade coming from Kansas. Hey, you guys can turn around and go back. Colorado volunteers, they're there. Second Colorado is forming to come down. He says, don't need you. Y'all go do whatever it is y'all need to do. First Colorado, y'all can go back. I can do this with New Mexico volunteers. And there's a brigade from California coming. They'll be able to kind of tidy up things. Hey, man, the West is now secure. Yeah, the, so the West the is secure. You're welcome. Is, yeah, you're welcome. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. And the uh, Confederate Brigade, Sibley's Brigade, gets to San Antonio, and they are so in such bad shape that the Confederate authorities say, y'all just go home for two months. We'll call you when we need you. You know, you wow. guys look terrible. Go back home and get some home cooking. Yeah. You know, get some clothes. Uh, we'll see if we can find some weapons for you. But yeah, for all yeah. intents and purposes, you guys are done. Right. Well, as the war continues, and the war does continue, what happens to Sibley as the war continues? Well, he heads up to Richmond, makes his report, and the people in Richmond say, well, okay, we're going to say that you did your best and things didn't work out like you hoped. But, you know, Sibley is the ranking brigadier general 
in the entire Confederate Army. He was one of the first commissions, and the rest of these guys were all getting promoted up to major general. He's still brigadier general, which makes him a senior brigadier general. Right. That group. So they said, well, all right, we're going to send you back to um, your command. Well, when he's up there, he says, look, let me bring my command to Virginia. We'll cover ourselves with glory here. Then Richmond says, well, they need help in Tennessee. Maybe we'll send you there. Oh, they need help at Vicksburg. Maybe we'll send you there. But then they get a dispatch from Louisiana and they say, no, we really need help here. So Sibley doesn't get his first, second or third you know, choice assignment. He gets told to go back to Texas and then get his troops to reinforce into Louisiana. And then he's going, man, that what a terrible yuck. Who wants to go to Louisiana? <laughs> but he follows orders. He goes to Louisiana, uh, reports to uh, Major General Richard Taylor, says, I'm here. My brigade's still in Texas, but they'll join us here. Richard Taylor says, fine, I need you to go and operate between the Shafalaya River and the Mississippi with uh, your headquarters, a little place called Rosedale. Louisiana. At his uh, beck and call is a battalion of guys he brought out of New Mexico called the Arizona Battalion. And these are guys from Tucson, Las Cruces, Sia. These are real life Southwesterners. I mean, desert dwellers. And they're now operating in and amongst the swamps and uh, cane fields of Louisiana with Sibley in charge. Uh, Sibley's brigade reforms after their two months at home and they're getting ready to, to go into Louisiana, but they're moving slow. And before they can get to Louisiana, they get short-stopped. Turns out the Federals have invaded Texas, captured the city of Galveston, and Sibley's brigade is diverted over to a campaign to retake Galveston, which they do in, in really fine form. And half the brigade actually serves as Marines or essentially sharpshooters aboard some gunboats. Wow. So they fought on foot and on horseback in the desert southwest. Now they're fighting aboard ships <laughs> and boarding ships and carrying them at the point of shotgun and pistol in Galveston. And finally, in the beginning of 1863, they're released to go into Louisiana. And that's where that brigade will fight for the rest of the uh, war. Sibley's reunited with his brigade. Tom Green is still not promoted. He's not promoted because everybody said that while Sibley was drunk, Tom Green was passing him the bottle and that uh, Green was probably a drunk too. So he's kind of tarred with the same brush. There is a uh, big fight uh, in uh, April of uh, 1863, uh, really a series of two fights, Battle of Bislin and Irish Bend that has to do with sort of the preliminary movements that lead to the Port Hudson camp. And at the Battle of Bislin, Tom Green once again proves himself a hero, uh, redeems his reputation. Sibley disobeys orders from Richard uh, Taylor. Taylor wanted him to make this sort of very rash dawn assault. And Sibley said, you're asking me to do something my guys aren't going to do. And there's a lot more bad guys out there in that mist and haze than you think there are. So he just doesn't do it. And then during the retreat, he uh, ends up having a bunch of his wounded get captured by the fair. So Richard Taylor uh, brings him up on charges. So once again, Sibley's having to face the music for right. his conduct in the field. Ultimately, he is cleared of all charges. But by the time he is cleared, which isn't until several months later, Tom Green's been given command of his brigade and promoted to brigadier general. So now Sibley is a brigadier, brigadier with no command. So he goes to Richmond. He's been cleared. And Richmond can't figure out what to do it. So he just kind of hangs out in Richmond for the rest of the war. At the end of the war, he had finally gotten on a blockade runner and was in 
Cuba trying to get back to Texas when the war ends. So do you, in your opinion, do you think that uh, Sibley did suffer from alcoholism? I mean, did that really hinder his decisions yeah. on campaign? Yeah, or? I think that he was an extraordinarily gifted soldier. I think he did really, really well. But it's like so many people that have a physical you know, limitation, you know, whether it's substance abuse, whether they're, <clears throat> you know, have some sort of drug addiction or right, they're an right. alcoholic, you know, it, it keeps them from achieving that sort of next level greatness. Right. He was extraordinarily confident. The stuff he did in Louisiana, I thought was really on par with any uh, leadership I've seen in the war. Yeah. Uh, but he did have that sort of, uh, you know, had feet of clay. He just had bad, bad kidney stones that he self-medicated yep. with. And that just held him back. He did go uh, overseas after the war, right? Yeah, after the war, he ends up looking for a job. And, yeah. you know, he married a woman from New York. And so he's got this sort of, you know, torn loyalty. He's from Louisiana. She's from New York City. They can't quite figure out what will become of them in the post-war era. At that time, the uh, Khedive of Egypt was looking for soldiers of fortune. And uh, he, like so many others, went out there to sell his sword to a foreign power. And he operated as an officer in the army of the Khedive uh, in um, Egypt, along with people like William Wing Loring and other right, right. Civil War veterans. So he does that for a while. Once again, alcoholism cripples him. And he finally uh, retires to New York City. And uh, that's actually where he dies. Wow, what a career. Yeah. And, and and in regards to more post-war stuff, what happens to Canby? Canby, uh, you know, his biographer referred to him as the prudent soldier. And so Canby administers all that Western territory, and it's a lot of area. And they've got Indian campaigns that break out and things like that. Then he heads back east and helps with some of the logistics and training. And finally, he gets moved to New Orleans to take over after Nathaniel P. Banks kind of shows the limitations of his genius in the uh, Red River campaign. So Canby's the last commander of the Department of the Gulf, and as such, is technically facing the same troops he faced in New Mexico all over again. But right. by the time that Canby takes over, you know, majority of that fighting is over with. And uh, Canby's also responsible for operating in East Louisiana. It helps conduct what they call the barn burning campaign that cripples all that area in terms of being able to support the Confederate effort. Canby is where all the trans-Mississippi generals, that, that's the guy they surrender to at the end of the war. And so Canby is this guy that's really good at organizing. He's never really, um, he doesn't shine particularly brightly on the battlefield at Mount Verde, but he, he keeps from having a disaster. Yeah. Uh, there's other guys that uh, fight in the New Mexico campaign, like Gabriel Paul, that end up going back east and having distinguished careers. Uh, but Paul is previously wounded. He's hit in the temple. Bullet goes temple to temple and blows his eyes out at the Battle of Gettysburg. So here's a guy who was instrumental at, uh, in the fight at Glorietta that also is instrumental in the fight at Gettysburg. So these wow. guys end up having very interesting careers all over the course of the war. Uh, can be once again in the post-war era is a very able administrator ends up being on the northwest uh, frontier up in the uh, modoc country in uh, northern california southern oregon and is busy trying to talk the modocs into uh, surrendering getting up uh, they kind of made a little hideout holdout area in the lava beds up there and uh, in the middle of the meeting uh, with their leader captain jack captain jack kills him 
<laughs> pulls a pistol out and shoots candy right through the heart. Wow. And that's the end of candy. But he had a long and distinguished career and really aided the uh, federal war efforts in ways that were very steady, but not flashy. Right, right. Absolutely. And ultimately, I, I just want to get your opinion on this because this is the untold civil war podcast where we talk about untold stories why do you feel uh or why do you think people sort of forget this campaign why does this campaign remain so untold we kind of talked about in the beginning how everything is about virginia or gettysburg to me when i think about this campaign i think of all i know as historians we're not supposed to talk about the what if what ifs right but you know if, if the confederacy had gained the gold in colorado had opened up another coast for trade I mean, that's a big what if, and yet it sort of falls in the realm of untold. Why do you think that? Yeah, the the stakes were extraordinarily high, and they're much higher than people give credence to. Part of the reason that is is because we know how the thing ends. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so we we spend a lot of time thinking about how the thing ends instead of the what might have been. But I can assure you that in 1861, that looked like a major threat. If you were in the in the war room in the Lincoln administration, you were starting to tug on your eyelashes, you know, like, oh my gosh, yeah, what's going on out there in the West? You know, what are we going to do about this? You know, it's interesting. Mexico's in the middle of its own civil war at the time. And there are governors in the northern Mexican states going, you know, we're not sure which which one of these gringo groups is going to win. But yeah. uh, if it's these guys. We might be able to do business with them, opening up the port of Guaymas on the Sea of Cortez, um, the Gulf of uh, Baja down there. Um, that would have given you another uh, import-export point. So they're trying to figure out which way things are going to go. Had the French been able to move with a little more speed? You know, in many ways, the Battle of the Cinco de Mayo, yeah. the Battle of Puebla, ends up dismantling and derailing a bunch of this stuff as much as anything. So I like to tell everybody that Ignacio Zaragoza, Texas-born Mexican general that uh, wins the Battle of the Cinco de Mayo, may have done as much to save the Union in 1862 as any federal general. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And so there's a lot of moving parts that are going on down there that people just, they get so focused on numbers. You know, Gettysburg, you've got 80,000 men. You've got, you know, McClellan's marching 120,000-man army. Sometimes, you know, it's it's these small, far away fights upon which history pivots. Yeah. And uh, that was certainly the case back then. Oh, absolutely. Well, it, you know, it's been great talking. And I think we're getting to be about that time now. But how can people get access to your books and, and more yeah. access to you? Uh, they can, a uh, number of ways. For the books, they can go to Amazon.com. Just go type in Donald S. Frazier, you'll see not only um, Blood and Treasure, which is what we've been talking about today, but think of it as the Hobbit to my Louisiana Lord of the Rings, because <laughs> I've got several books on the uh, uh, the war uh, in uh, Texas and Louisiana, which is essentially the follow-on to all this stuff in New Mexico. So you can go to Amazon. My entire works are all there and available. They can get a hold of me at the Texas Center at Shriner University. And I'm happy to do, uh, you know, Zoom appearances, speaking gigs, whatever they need. They can certainly get a hold of me here. And uh, we've got a nice program here where we're talking Texas all day long, every day. Fantastic. And, uh, we're thinking about ways, yeah, getting Texas ready to face its future. Because Texas is about to be the fastest growing state in the union. 
uh, we're going to double the number of uh, Texans here by 2050. And so I've been hired to think about such things. And so uh, this is where I am in Kerrville, Texas. Yeah, I, uh, I bump into someone almost every day that tells me they're moving down there. So <laughs> going to be a lot of new Texans. Yeah. Um, well, that's good. Somebody's got to tell the natives and newcomers alike what they're inheriting. And that falls to me. There you go. Fantastic. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show and doing this. And as I've said before, I hope you come on and, and do it again. I've got plenty more to talk about. I appreciate the invitation anytime. Thank you for tuning in while you did the gardening, cooking dinner for the family, while holed up in Fort Craig, tossing your lance in the garbage, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Craig Duncan for the use of his music. Thank you all for having liked and followed and shared the podcast on social media. All of that helps get the word out on Untold Civil War. And for now, be safe, and I hope you tune in next time for the next episode.